Hey, it's great to be with you. My name is Matt Blackwell. I serve as one of the pastors here at the Austin Stone down in South Austin at our South Campus. And uh, it's a lot of fun to be here uh, this morning with y'all. And uh, we're going to be back in Mark chapter 12. So if you've been with us for a little while, we've been moving through the book of Mark. Uh, We took a little uh, break from that uh, over the last month or so as we did our summer preaching series. But we're back into Mark starting today. Uh, And I wanted to kind of refresh you and remind you of where we've been so that you can, uh, can jump off uh, as we go into this. So here's where we've been in Mark the last uh, couple weeks before our break is this, is that uh, you can remember Jesus coming into Jerusalem. This is the last maybe week or so of Jesus' uh, earthly life. And he comes in to Jerusalem. Remember, he came in on a donkey in that triumphal entry. And so he comes into town. Uh, The very first thing he does is he goes into the temple and he wrecks shop. I mean, he's thrown over tables, he's thrown people out, uh, and, and there's some things that were going on in the temple that uh, were not glorifying to God, and so he wrecked shop there, which causes all these religious leaders to begin to question him, uh, and they, they asked him a question in Mark eleven twenty eight, and they said, Jesus, by what authority do you do these things? Essentially, they're asking, who do you think you are that you can march in here and start throwing people around and barking orders? What gives you the right to do this? And so they proceed to begin to ask him lots of different questions to try to trip him up theologically, uh, which seems like a little bit of an inconsistency knowing uh, what we know about Jesus. It's kind of hard to trip God up theologically, by the way. Uh, And so they try to trip God up theologically and they ask him about the resurrection and they ask him about money and they ask him about the afterlife. And time after time after time, he shuts them down and answers correctly. To the point uh, to which finally they say, we're, we're not asking any more questions. Let's just kill him. Let's let's rid the earth of him. And it's at that point where we pick up our story and Jesus begins to ask some questions of his own. And what he begins to do is reveal who he is. He's essentially answering the question, who do you think you are? Where does your authority come from? And so that's where we find ourselves in Mark chapter 12, verse 35. It will be on the screen. It says this. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And so what we see here is Jesus beginning to reveal who he is in answering the question, by what authority do you do these things? And so I've read this passage before. Maybe you've read it before. This is Psalm 110, and Jesus is using Psalm 110 to reveal himself, to do this teaching. Uh, And it's always been a confusing kind of deal for me. Um, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Like of all the places Jesus could have gone to in Scripture, it seems like a little bit of a confusing one and there's lots of different places he could have gone but he chooses psalm 110 to begin to reveal his identity and when he reveals his identity the people are given one of two options to respond to either reject him or receive him and so he begins to teach about who he is and he uses psalm 110 to do it and i just saw at least four things that we see about the identity of jesus in this particular teaching The first thing is this, it says, Jesus comes along and he quotes Psalm 110. He says, the Lord said to my Lord, 
And so David is the guy who wrote Psalm 110. He's this guy who wrote this. And so, David, uh, so Jesus is essentially saying, how is it that David can be writing this, calling the coming Messiah his Lord? You see, this coming Messiah is supposed to be the son of David. How can he both at the same time be the son of David and the Lord of David? And so that's what he's happening. So here's kind of what's going on uh, at this time. There was a, uh, the normal way of thinking about this coming Christ, this coming Messiah, was there was going to be a man uh, who was in the line, in the descend, who was a descendant of King David. And this man was going to be a political or military leader, and he was going to come back, and he was going to establish a kingdom in Israel. And Israel was going to no longer uh, be subjugated to all these foreign rulers, but they were going to uh, pay back all the people who had enslaved them, and they were going to be prosper- uh, have, have prosperity, and they were going to have land, and they were going to have the kingdom. And so they longed for the day where this man, this son of David, would come to reestablish their prominence. And so they had this idea partly correct. There was going to be a man that was going to do these things, but it wasn't simply a man. It was also the Lord. And so Jesus is coming along saying, how can this person, this Messiah, be at the same time the son of David and the Lord of David? How can, how can that person be? Now, now I've got a couple kids in, in, in my house. I don't walk around calling them my Lord, although they would prefer if I did, I think, oftentimes. Uh, that's how they, re- they think that they are the little lords, but that's not how authority works. Authority comes from me down to them. And in the same way, what we see here is that at the same time, Jesus is both the son of David in his humanity, but he's also the Lord of David in his divinity. He is at the same time perfect humanity and undiminished deity wrapped in human flesh in the person of Jesus. That's who he is. And he begins to reveal his identity to these people to say, I'm not just the son of David. I'm also his Lord. I'm not just human. I'm also God in the flesh. And so he's showing himself about who he is. And man, this is good news for us. It's good news for us that that Jesus is humanity because in his humanity, we get his empathy. Like we, he gets it. He knows the weight of sin and temptation He feels that uniquely. He knows what it means to be tired. He knows what it means to be hungry. He knows what it means to have a friend turn their back on you. He knows what that feels like because he's uniquely experienced it in his humanity. But it's not an empty empathy. It's it's an empathy. It's a compassion. But that's coupled with his authority as God. So he feels the weight of that. But as God, as the authority, he's able to actually do something about it. He's able to step in and he has the authority to forgive sin. He has the authority to conquer death. He has the authority to take on that weight and to give us in its place his righteousness. And so it's good news for us that he is both human and divine. And that's who he is. And that's how he is beginning to reveal himself to these people. Now, this is important for us. I think maybe we've heard people talk about Jesus in this way. Or maybe we've talked about Jesus in this way. Of like, you know, Jesus is a really good guy. Like, like I want to follow him. I want to example, exemplify him. I want him to be my example and sort of live the life that he lived and the way that he loved people, the way that he cared for the poor. Like, I want to, I want to follow him in his humanity. Yes, that's incredible. We, we ought to want to follow him as our example. But that's an insufficient Christology. It's an insufficient understanding of his identity. Because not only do we follow him in his humanity, but we worship him in his deity. 
See, he, he, we, we ought to follow him as the son of David, but we also ought to worship him as the Lord of David. We honor him in his authority. And so when we walk with him, when we know him, we, we know him as such, as both human perfection and divine undiminished. And that's who he is revealing himself to be. But it doesn't stop there. The second thing that he reveals about himself, not only is he uh, the Lord and the Son, but it says this. It says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And as I read this, it, it seems interesting, uh, the idea of, of sitting, right? Like there's no wasted words in the scripture. They're purposeful. And so the Lord said to my Lord, sit. Now what do you do? When do you sit? When is a time that you enjoy a good It's taking a load off, sitting down at the end of a day, man. When when you work hard, you go out there, you make all the sales, you hammer up stuff, you teach a bunch of kids, whatever it is that you do at the end of the day, you want to come home, you want to sit at your table, you want to enjoy a meal, you want to sit in your chair, maybe you want to flip on the Rangers, watch them beat the Astros again. What? I'm just saying, first place. So that's what you want to do. You want to sit down because you had a complete day. So what's happening here is, it's, is he's saying there is a completion to the work of Christ. It says, sit at my right hand. Now there's something happening here that, 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 that I want you to see is that Jesus is teaching in the temple Psalm 110. So Psalm 110 was written a millennia ago and then, and then Jesus comes and, and he begins to teach it in the temple. And then all of a sudden later in the scriptures, the author of Hebrews takes up this theme and he, and he takes Psalm 110 and applies it directly to the work of Jesus. Watch this in, in Hebrews chapter 10. It says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So what the author of Hebrews is saying is this, is that there was no chair in the temple because the priest had to stand and continually make sacrifices of bulls and goats and birds and the blood had to continually be spilled because the sins of humanity continued to pile up. And as humanity continued to sin, the sacrifices had to go on and on and on. And so the priest stood until the perfect lamb would bring the perfect sacrifice. And that sacrifice would be the complete sacrifice for the covering of sins, of the sins of humanity. And at that point, he could sit down because there was a completion to his work. You say, what does that mean for me? That means this for us, and this is why it's good news for us, is because the work of Christ is completed. It is sufficient to cover your sins. So you might come in here this morning and you say, no, no, no. See, you don't understand where I've been, what I've done, what I've seen, what I've said. Like, you don't understand how far away I am from God. Like, you don't know where I've, I've done these things. God couldn't possibly forgive me for these things. And I have this word for you, that the work of Christ is complete and sufficient to cover even a wretch like me and a wretch like you. And that is such good news for us. You see, we come in and we say, you know, God couldn't possibly forgive me. And, you know, I used to say that. I, I remember in college I would continually struggle with the same sins over and over. And I'd bring those things back up. And I'd say, surely, like, I'm done this time. Like, I can't possibly be brought back into relationship. Surely, like, he's like, okay, check, you're done. 
But the good news for us is this, is that his, his sacrifice is sufficient for us so that you can't out God's grace. Like you can't do more bad than he is good. And, and it's a, really a position of arrogance to say, no, I'm worse than you are good, God. And so we trust in his sufficiency of his sacrifice, that he sits down because his work is complete. And notice where the psalmist says he sits, he sits at the right hand of God. This is the, the place of authority, it's the place of honor. It's the seat that counts, that matters. You know, there's different sort of seats, some have honor, some don't. I, I remember um, recently I was at a wedding, I performed a, a wedding, and so I went to the reception afterwards. And so I walk into the reception hall and all the tables are full. I didn't really know a lot of people at the wedding. And so I see one table. It's right next to the buffet. I'm like, all right, check. Uh, I got a great view of the dance floor. I don't actually have to get up. Check. This is going to be great. So I proceed to sit there. Uh, and I sat there for about a second before I feel the, the, the blazing stares and judgment of someone from across the room. And I, I begin to see this motion towards me. And, and you don't want to anger a wedding planner. Uh, and so she runs over to me and says, what is it that you were doing? Uh, why are you sitting here? And I said, well, because it's open. And she said, did you not see on the plates the big plaques that said bride and groom? <laughs> Whoops, my bad. Okay, yeah, this is not my seat. This is not where I belong. So there are certain seats that have honor. There are certain seats that have meaning and value. Uh, and when, when the psalmist writes this, he says he sits, Jesus sits at the right hand, which means it's a seat of honor and authority. That seat meant something. It was reserved for him. But this is good news is that he won't always sit. As a matter of fact, there'll be a day when he stands up from that seat. And it says this, the psalmist goes on to say, he, there'll be a day, he'll sit until, until there's a day where he will put his enemies under his feet and he will rise up from his seat and he will return back to judge the living and the dead. And he will return the church back to himself and he will vanquish sin and Satan and death. And that day we look forward to and we long for, but he is revealing to the people who he is. He said, you asked me a question, where, where do I get my authority from? Let me tell you where I get my authority from. And Jesus answers their question and he says this, he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. I'm the Son of David in my humanity and the Lord of David in my deity. That, that, that I sit because the work of, of, of salvation for humanity is complete. And where do I sit? I sit at the right hand of God in honor and authority. And not only that, there'll be a day when I rise up again and I come back to get my church, to get my bride. And we're going to celebrate one heck of a wedding when that happens. And that is the day that is coming. So you ask me, who do I think I am? That's who I am. I'm the Lord. And so that's where the bomb that he drops from Psalm 110 is he's saying, this is who I am. And in this kind of great reveal, we begin to see who he is. And when we see who he is, we're left with one of two responses, either we reject his identity or we receive his identity. It's kind of like this. Have you ever seen the show uh, Undercover Boss? Nobody's admitting that at this point. No, of course not. I've never even heard of that. What are you talking about? I watch cool shows like Breaking Bad or uh, something else about guys on motorcycles, but I don't watch those kind of shows. Uh, nobody admits to watching certain shows, but they all are on for like six years, so some of us are actually watching them. But there's a show... Uh, in theory, that's called The Undercover Boss. And what it is, for those of you who haven't heard of it, 
Um, it's when a CEO or some high-ranking uh, business official leaves the boardroom and goes to the stockroom, essentially. Uh, they go on and they take a low-level position in the company in order to learn what's going on and to see kind of the ins and outs of uh, what their corporate policies have done, and they get to meet some of the, uh, the people. So they pretend like they're these entry-level positions, and so they pose as uh, new employees. And the, 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 the high point of the show every time is when they, it's kind of a big reveal. They bring the uh, employees in to headquarters and they open these giant mahogany doors and they walk into the CEO's office uh, and they're flabbergasted. Oh my gosh, no way, that's the, you know, the CEO. And, and at that point, they're either uh, freaked out that they treated the CEO kind of like a jerk. And so they're like, I'm pretty much done here. Uh, or uh, they're excited because they treated the CEO well, and so they're like, ching, cash my ticket, right? And so that's always the best part of the show is seeing uh, the people respond to this big reveal. And, and that's what we're seeing as Jesus begins to reveal who he is, the people respond in a couple of different ways. And so Mark, what he's doing as he's writing this, he says, this is who Jesus is, and here's some of the response about how people are living in response to that. So let's keep reading verse 38 of Mark 12. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who, who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And so Jesus sits down and begins to teach about being weary of the scribes, these religious leaders. Now, something that struck me this week is that Jesus is in the temple teaching about the scribes. Now, why is that significant? Well, because the scribe would be like standing over here. It's not like Jesus is talking behind their back. He's like, see that guy over in the long robe? Yeah, that guy who's doing all those prayers, pointing at him, saying, beware of that guy. And the reason that's significant is because this, is because these religious leaders essentially were, were continuing to hear from Jesus, the very incarnate Son of God, the one who is the Son of God and the Lord of God and who sits at the right hand of God. He's there physically in their presence and he's teaching them and he's showing them and revealing to them uh, how they should live and who he is. And I'm thinking about that this week going, you know, there's, so, there's times in my life, maybe y'all have done this too, where, um, you know, I'm trying to make a decision and I'm like, oh God, if you'd only like write it in the sky or, or, or somehow just do some dramatic way, like it's, it's unquestionable what you want me to do. Like you want me to, uh, to go to this place or take this job or this job or marry this person or this person. If, and if, by the way, that's what you're struggling with. You're doing all right. I can marry either of these people. I'm doing pretty good. Uh, some of, some of y'all don't have that issue, right? Uh, so, so God, what do I do? Like, and, and we say, if, if God would only show up and he would show up in my dorm room, he'd show up in my living room and he would tell me what to do I totally would follow him but the truth of the matter is is that Jesus did show up that God did show up and he put himself in the temple teaching about who he is directly in front of people and they continued to reject him because their hearts were far from him so they had this sort of form of godliness but denied its power and so they deny who Jesus is they deny his identity, and it says in Mark that that leads to greater condemnation. And so I'm thinking about myself, and I'm looking at the way Jesus is telling these, these people to be weary of these, these religious leaders. 
And I look at these things, I'm like, well, I don't wear long robes. I don't have good seats in the synagogue. I'm good. But there's obviously something deeper in the heart of these people that Jesus is pointing out. He's pointing out their desire to look good on the exterior. He says they love to be greeted in the marketplaces. They want to be recognized. They want to be respected. They want the best seats in the house. They want to wear the finest clothes so that people look at them and say, those people are important and valuable. They want to be considered as somebody special. And I begin to look at that and I say, wait, maybe it's not about the robes and the seats in the synagogue. Maybe it's about something deeper in my heart. And maybe it's about this attitude of entitlement that I bring to God to say, God, if you do this, then I do this. And so I sort of begin to play this game with God that, that I begin to barter with him as if that's how this deal works. See, God, I'll show up. I'll do the religious stuff. But guess what? You, you need to show up and you need to bring blessing. You need to bring healing. You need to bring a job. You need to bring a spouse. You need to bring a 4.0 or heck, a 3.1. That'd be awesome. And we begin to barter with God, right? God, I showed up to church every week. You owe me. Like I joined a missional community. You owe me, God. You owe me friends. You owe me relationship. And, and then when God doesn't come through in the way that we want him to come through, in the timing that we want him to come through, we say, ah, oh, this isn't worth it. This isn't working. As if, that, if, as if bartering with God is the way that it works. Because when we assume a posture of entitlement and bartering with God, we're essentially putting ourselves in with equality with the one who spoke in, in creation and light just started. Light comes out of his mouth at 186,000 miles per second, the speed of light. That's who we're, like us and you, like we're right there. Like we're co-equals. So let's barter, let's trade. And he says, no, 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 no. I'm the son of David and I'm the Lord of David. I have authority as God. We don't barter here. You see, there is grace and there is kindness of God and everything he gives us is his kindness. It is his kindness that leads us to repentance. It is his grace that draws us in. And so these religious leaders are standing in this place. They're entitled to the best things. They're devouring the widow's houses as they make pretense of long prayers. And so they're long on prayers and short on compassion. And they're literally devouring the lives of the people they're supposed to be protecting, the ones that they're supposed to be serving. And it's all about how they look, but really has nothing to do with their hearts. And so Mark begins to compare and contrast this group of people with this other particular person. And he goes on to say this in verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all are contributed out of the, their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And so we see this contrasting between the religious leaders and this poor widow. So Jesus reveals himself. This is who I am. And we see in the presence of Jesus, the religious leaders rejecting him and saying, now this deal's all about us. And we see in contrast, this one poor widow. And she didn't have any seats in the synagogue. 
She didn't have any clothes that would call attention to herself. She wasn't uh, doing anything that would draw attention to herself. She takes her one penny, her last penny, and she puts it in the offering box and she gives out of her poverty the last of herself. And really in that act really gives up control because the, her, her, her money isn't her safety net. She gives it away and entrusts it to God. And we see that all of these, these wealthy people are making a show and they're putting in lots of money, but they're not giving out of their poverty. They're giving out of their margin. Because often when the wealthy give, they don't take food out of their mouth in order to give. They don't take clothes off their back in order to give, but they're giving out of their excess. This lady didn't do that. She came and gave her last cent. And Mark says, he says that she gives all she had to live on the word that he uses is this Greek word that says, it's the word bios, and it literally says that she gives her bios. She gives her life. So she gives her last penny, and even more than that, she gives her life away and entrusts it to God. And I'm reading that this week, and I've read this dozens of times, and I'm praying, I'm going, okay, Lord, I get this. I understand this. I understand I'm not supposed to be like the religious leaders who are pious and I'm supposed to be like this widow who, who's given everything. But Lord, I, I've read this a dozen times and it's never moved me to greater sacrifice. Like I honor, I respect this widow. And I'm like, man, that's great, but I'm not like her. I don't give any more after reading this. And so as I'm praying, I'm saying, God, how do, what, is this, what does this look like? How, do, how can I grow to be more like her in, in, in understanding your reality, understanding your identity? And it was this, this idea that, that she gave sacrificially to a broken religious system. She gave the last of herself, even her bios, to a system where those priests would take that last penny and buy themselves new robes. It was an insufficient sacrifice. It, it, was, it was insufficient to save because the system was broken. The very next chapter... The very next verse in chapter 13, right after 12, is this, is that Jesus walks out of the temple and he looks at the temple and he says, I'm going to tear this thing down. There will be no stone on top of another stone. I'm tearing this temple down, this system down, and I'm going to build a new temple and I'm going to be the chief cornerstone of a new temple. This isn't going to be a temple built with brick and mortar. It will be a new temple built with the redeemed saints of God. I will be its chief cornerstone. And so he's not calling us to sacrifice to a broken religious system. He's calling us to sacrifice to an eternal kingdom. And so all of a sudden it begins to change in my mind to say, okay, this lady was giving her bios away. So what does that mean for me? How do I give more? And it occurred to me that the very same word, the, the Greek word bios that's used here in Mark is the word that is used of what Jesus did for us. That he too gave his bios away. So what does it take to establish this new kingdom? And it takes Jesus' sacrifice of himself. So remember, Jesus' identity, he is the first, he is the last, he is the son, he is the Lord, he is authoritative, he sits and he's coming back. This is the one who gives his life away so that we might have life, so that we might sacrifice. And so we don't, we don't sacrifice out of emptiness, we sacrifice out of the fullness of God's sacrifice, his sufficient and complete sacrifice. 
That's the calling on us. We're called to die to ourselves, to take up our cross and follow him. And that's not just, I'm going to try really hard this week. Like this semester is really going to be the semester where sin is behind me and it's all in. I'm all in. Like, we've done that time after time. But the thing that would drive us to sacrifice is the recognition of Jesus' identity and his sacrifice for us. And it calls us to make a greater sacrifice, not out of emptiness, but out of fullness. And, you know, I, and I think so often we live like these religious leaders who are grasping for recognition. We're, we're grasping for identity. We're grasping to be important and to be known and to be valued. We're grasping for money. We're grasping that people would notice us in the marketplace and take notice and say, wow, look at their long robes. Listen to their great prayers. They must be somebody really important. But the good news for us is this, is that we don't have to grasp of those things because in Christ we already have all the recognition that we need. It's the sufficient sacrifice of Jesus that allows us to give away. And as we give away, he continues to supply our needs. We have all that we need for life and godliness. And he continues to supply our needs. And so in our sacrifice, there is joy. In our sacrifice, there is life. And that's the hope that I have for me and for us is that we would be like this widow, but, but unlike this widow, and that she gave to a broken system, we give to an eternal kingdom. She gave an insufficient sacrifice. We give because we've received a sufficient sacrifice in Jesus. So what does that look like? My hope is, is that, that as we begin to recognize the identity of God, the identity of Jesus, that we would trust in who he is. That we would trust that he is empathetic. He understands your pain and your plight. He knows your sin and loves you anyway. That you can't hide those things from God. But also this is that he is the authoritative one who can come and actually do something about your situation. He's the one who can come and change your death to life. He's the one who can come and forgive your sins and bring about a new sense of righteousness because he imputes his righteousness to you. You are his And so we trust in him in that and we trust him with our finances to say, God, this is yours. Do with it what you will. This is my career path. Do with it what you will. This is my singleness. This is my marriage. This is my family. This is my life. This is my worship. God, would you take this and make it even greater in the eternal kingdom? God, would you use this to build the stones of your kingdom so that many would come to know you, so that you would receive glory, so that I might be filled with the measure of fullness of God. And as I continue to give, you continue to fill. That's the kind of sacrifice that, man, that I hope we are able to give And as we give ourselves away, he continues to replenish and refill and restore and redeem and send us forth. And that's my hope for us. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful to you for your grace is sufficient. Your sacrifice is sufficient. Even though we feel like we can't measure up, the truth is we can't. But God, in Christ, we can And so, Lord, would you remind us of who you are? God, remind us as a people, as a church, uh, that you are the son of David, and in so you empathize with us, but you're the Lord of David, and you have the authority to do what is good and right. Remind us that you have the authority, and remind us, God, that there's a day where you will rise from your seat, and you will come back to take the church home. So, Lord, let us long for that, and wait for that, and hope for it, and live in light of that, trusting that you will return, that you will take us home. 
God, and I pray that in that you receive glory and we grow in our affection for you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.